am Lucas, aka Corner Kirby, and this is the place for musings on cryptography, technology, and whether or not rain is good for you. Today I'd like to talk a bit about a few topics in MPC um, that I managed to gather together into a bit of a coherent theme. So the first thing I'd like to touch upon is models of security for MPC. By the way, MPC is a multi-party computation, a topic I've touched about a few times on this podcast already, most notably for the MPC in the head special, which I think is one of the better episodes so far. But to go over MPC, the basic idea is that you have a group of people who want to compute some kind of function, which we usually call functionality, over their shared inputs. So let's say you have a group of people, they each have a certain amount of money, they want to know which of them is richest without knowing how much money the richest person has, or even how much money any of the other people have. So with MPC, they could run this function, which compares all of their money amounts and gives the index of the person with the most money, but doesn't reveal anything else about this. So with the trusted third party, you could do this by sending them your inputs. Each person would send that party the money they have, that party would run the function and then send the result to everybody else. And in that model, if you really trust the third party to not collude with any of the other people, to not leak any of the inputs it received and to actually compute the right result, then this sort of satisfies the guarantees you want. Nobody learns anything about the other inputs beyond what they could from the output of the function, and nobody can influence the results since they don't control the computation. And so then the goal of MPC with cryptography is to replace this trusted third party with some kind of protocol that the parties can run among themselves. So they don't need to trust anybody else just by doing computation on their own machine and sending messages and reacting to the messages they receive from other people. They can emulate what this uh, trusted third party could provide. So they may not do exactly what that third party does, but in the end, looking at the properties of the system in sort of an opaque way, you achieve the, the same functionality. And there's sort of two basic ways of, of looking at misbehavior in the system. Because if everybody is it behaves honestly and doesn't actually care about what the other people's inputs are. For example, if the inputs aren't secret, this is very simple because everybody can just send their inputs to each other and then they all compute the function. The problem is that this leaks the input. So then you want to sort of have some kind of protocol where people exchange messages and the goal is so that people don't learn any of the secret inputs. And so instead of sending just the inputs, you obfuscate them in some way or use other cryptographic techniques. And so this basic model is what we call semi-honest and that we're still assuming that nodes will follow the protocol. We want to avoid nodes learning information sort of by accident, but if they follow the protocol, then we know that no information is gonna go, gonna get leaked uh, through the process. 
But what's key here is that we are assuming that nodes will follow any protocol that we've designed. And if they don't, well, two bad things can happen. One is you could leak information. So maybe by not following the protocol and sending different messages, I could learn extra information about the inputs. Another thing that might go wrong is correctness. So maybe I don't really care about learning the inputs, but I care about influencing the results. So maybe by sending the right messages, I can change which function we're computing, or I can change someone's input to be a different value. So I can make it seem like I'm the richest person, going back to our analogy, without uh, actually being the richest. And to do this, I need to sort of break away from the protocol. And so then a more hardened notion of security would be to what we call malicious security. So unlike semi-honest, where we assume that nodes will behave correctly, we just don't want them to learn anything. With the malicious model, we don't assume anything about the node's behavior. So they can send arbitrary messages at any time to other people, and they can deviate from the protocol, and they can even collaborate with other parallel uh, sections of the protocol, that's sort of concurrent security, which is sort of orthogonal to these things. And by misbehaving and deviating from the protocol, often you can gain a significant advantage. And so, I mean, the natural question, because presented like this, you'd think, well, why ever bother with semi-honest security? If malicious security could come at no cost, there'd be no reason to, ta uh, to not want it. Because it's just more security guarantees, right? Of course, the tricky thing is that it doesn't come at no cost. Malicious security is much harder to achieve than semi-honest security because there's just so many more ways that an adversary can choose to exploit your systems, you have to significantly constrain what they can do. And that's quite difficult. And because of this, it's, it's if you can get away with semi-honest security, if that's a reasonable, a reasonable threat model, you might want to do it because you can get much cheaper protocols. And, you know, much cheaper can be several order, orders of magnitude. So it's it's really quite a difference. Although I think as, as cryptography improves and we develop better techniques, the gap will, will shorten, of course. But there's always going to be some gap. So there's never going to be no cost to malicious security. So I had a thread on this on Twitter the other day, and I got some interesting responses. So I think one thing that... that sort of shows up, which is a good point, is that semi-honest security can be enough in trusted settings. So one example of this is, let's say you have multiple hospitals collaborating together. Maybe they want to compute some statistics on you know medical data, but obviously they, they're not legally allowed to share it with the other people. So semi-honest security can be sort of good enough in that case because It's enough for sort of regulatory compliance in that there's no way to retrieve the data by running the protocol honestly. And you trust people enough to run the software correctly. And maybe even there's a, a question of incompetence there. Because if I say, well, the hospital is not going to be savvy enough to run a custom cracked version of the MPC software that we're giving them. Uh, because basically... You can deviate from the protocol, but in practice, the way this is going to work is that you could download some kind of app or some kind of 
program that you run and that, that does the protocol for you because you're not going to be doing this by hand. And so really you'd have to sort of modify that program to cheat in a specific way. So you have to assume a certain level of competence on the part of uh, the person. And that brings up an interesting point with regards to like supply chain attacks on the NPC software itself, because you have to trust that the software is doing the right thing, you know. But one argument I have uh, on the regulatory compliance thing is that there's probably cheaper ways to do regulatory compliance than NPC. Like maybe it's possible to just like obfuscate the data in a simple way and that passes the, the regulatory sniff test. Because often uh, the incentives, uh, the, the models of what of what counts for regulatory compliance is often very different than what cryptographers count. Like the rule of signatures is very different than that of dig digital signatures. And by signatures, I mean, you know, ink, ink on paper. Yeah. And then there's also sort of this notion that, well, maybe you're in a setting where you sort of have a good amount of auditability about what's going on. So you can, you can check after the fact that like people didn't deviate through the protocol and stuff like that. Or maybe you can force uh, nodes to run certain versions of software because you control uh, their hardware, and stuff like that. So that would be an argument in favor of using semi-honest security. I think the problem, the thing that concerns me the most with semi-honest security is that it's possible to have silent failure, failures. So either privacy information that doesn't get noticed, like you have private information that leaks, and then you wouldn't be aware of that, or you have silent uh, changings of the result. And so if this happens, you can't you know, detect it. And so that's very concerning. And that's why I honestly think that the malicious model is more useful in general if it can be achieved at low cost. Uh, it just, it, there's, there's a lot of assumptions you have to make in your threat model for semi-honest to work out. And it's, it's difficult to know the ways in which this, these will be violated. Whereas in the malicious model, you make very few assumptions about what the adversary can do. In fact, you don't make any of them, basically. Well, you have to be careful sometimes because there's, there can be a mismatch between the specification of protocol on paper and the actual programming implementation because you have to sort of reject messages that just make absolutely no sense in the context of the protocol or messages that are in the wrong round or stuff like that. So you need to be careful there. And also, you know, one way of deviating through the protocol is trying to exploit security vulnerabilities in your code. So if there's like a use after free or buffer overflow in your MPC uh, code, somebody could try and, you know, send you exploits based on that. And I guess this brings me to another sort of topic in MPC, which I also talked about on Twitter. And so that's connecting MPC with consensus and Byzantine consensus because, depending on our threat model, of course. So often the way MPC libraries or protocols work is there's sort of an assumption of a kind of communication substrate, but it's sort of assumed that the parties have already agreed A, to run a specific function and B, to run it on specific inputs. So you can also do MPC with like commitments so that you know which inputs you're, you're running the protocol on so that people can't deviate from inputs they've committed to in advance. And to make this a bit more concrete, one example of an MPC protocol is a threshold signature. So that's where multiple people want to come together to create a signature uh, using a private key that's shared among them, but which nobody has entirely. 
And so here you need to come to consensus on the fact that you need to sign a message. So you need to say, okay, this is the message we're going to sign. Now let's run the protocol. And this kind of setup is always out of band in MPC protocols. So you always assume that there's some mechanism to agree on the message to sign or on the inputs to use or the function to compute. And I think this is a good thing because cryptographic libraries really should kind of state what they need in terms of communication assumptions and ideally minimize those, but then otherwise leave it to other people to implement because those can vary widely based on context. For example, in, in some systems, you can like post uh, MPC messages on a blockchain and that provides you with the total ordering of messages and like sort of a, an auditability. And so if you baked all that functionality into the library, you wouldn't be able to use that extra guarantees those extra guarantees you have in this context. So that's why I think it's it's good for libraries that do MPC to be sort of agnostic to the communication model and to consensus. But this does mean that often you need to combine an MPC protocol with a consensus protocol. For example, getting consensus on which message to sign. And so if we continue our threat model thing, there's the semi-honest model for consensus where you assume that people follow a protocol and and then there's the malicious model where you assume that people will try and deviate from the protocol. And then the goal with consensus is that there's sort of two properties you want to have. One is that everybody agrees on the same value and the value must not have come out of thin air. It must have been something somebody actually proposed. And you can't have, and eventually everybody will agree on the value. So you can't have somebody that's just stuck hanging. So that's sort of the, a fairness or sort of a liveness assumption about consensus. And the tricky thing is that even, even in the semi-honest model, you have to make some assumptions about how many nodes can fail or are corrupted, is the term, in order to get fairness or sometimes even correctness. If you have, if you assume that messages can be signed, it's it's more so about fairness than than having two people disagree on a value. And this means that often you can have an MPC protocol which makes no assumptions about the number of failures. Although if the failures are more than a majority, you can't guarantee that everybody will re receive the output of the MPC protocol. That's a bit of a technicality. But anyhow, the MPC protocol makes no assumptions and yet the consensus protocol does. So you have this weird situation where like the consensus protocol says, okay, well, we need an honest majority. MPC protocol doesn't say anything about that. And then the tricky thing is like, well, what do you use for the composition? Because you could say, well, since we need an honest majority for the consensus, why not just use an honest majority MPC protocol for the second part? Because that would be cheaper. The thing is that like the failure modes are very different. This is something I pointed out on Twitter. Because the failure mode of the consensus part, if you have a dishonest majority, is, well, you can get people to disagree on the inputs to use. That, that's kind of bad. But it's not, it, you, you don't, it, you don't really get, you can't really get catastrophic information leaked from that a priori. Depending on the function, maybe, yes. So that's a bit interesting. And then you have the main, more common failure, which is common to basically all consensus schemes is that, well, if you have a dishonest majority, you could uh, basically prevent people from learning the, the output. And so you kind of get stuck. So you have sort of a liveness failure there. 
where the system hard halts. But that's a, a much better problem to have than the NPC problem, which is that if a majority is dishonest, you could silently change the output or silently leak data. And that's a much worse failure mode than the consensus mode. So ideally, <laughs> you would you would still use an NPC protocol which which does have those extra guarantees up to an arbitrary number of corruptions because you don't want this failure mode of silent information leakage or silent corruption of the output because those are really terrible. And, and ideally you'd have a, a consensus protocol which also works like this. So the best you can really hope for because you can't, you can't really get an, an ideal situation here. The best you could do is sort of like, you have a consensus protocol which won't cause disagreements so that avoids any downstream problems, but it may cause liveness. So you, and then composing that with the NPC as a whole, you'd have a system where it's possible that you might not be able to make progress and like compute stuff, but you know that nobody's gonna disagree on what they're computing and nobody's going to, you, there's no way to influence the output maliciously or learn any information about the secret inputs. And yeah, in general, this is something I don't really have the best grip on because consensus is quite tricky. And there's a lot of different guarantees and whatnot. And also consensus is more so, well, there's a lot more stuff talking about consensus in like a very plain model where there's no assumption about the ability to assign messages and whatnot. And being able to do that is, is very common in the cryptographic context and almost basically assume for NPC and that can sort of help. And in general, I think the composition of NPC and sort of like consensus and other, you know, setup or organization techniques is kind of understudied. And I think we need to see a lot of systems try to engineer NPC at scale to really To really push this forward and actually figure out like how to make this work in an automated fashion and without any spurious errors because right now a lot of the integration work is very ad hoc and so it'd be nice to have some explicit study of how this composition works and a, a thing related to the sort of ad hoc use of mpc protocols is something called identifiable aborts so I wrote a post about this a few weeks ago. And so I mentioned today that with a dishonest majority of participants in MPC, you can't guarantee that everybody's going to receive the output. You can guarantee that the output is going to be correct and that no information leakage has happened, but you can't you can't make sure that everybody receives the output because basically if enough nodes are corrupt, they can just withhold the output after learning it themselves. And so the last guy is just, you know, stuck hanging there. So one, one thing people, so, so this is called security with abort because basically the way you capture this is the adversary can stop the, the protocol at any point and they control that. And so one, better notion or rather stronger notion is that of security with identifiable abort, which says that if an abort happens by the adversary through their actions, then you can identify at least one corrupted party. So 
if the adversary stops prematurely, you can say, okay, well, at least this node is corrupt. Uh, and the idea of doing this is that, well, you may not be able to guarantee liveness because you could have these aborts, but there's a strong, there's, since you can identify people that participated in the aborting, there's a strong sort of economic, uh, there's a potential economic incentive you can apply here because you could sort of require people participating to stake some kind of uh, asset and then you could slash them if they're identified as being part of the aborters. And this would strongly discourage people from preventing progress because they know that part of their stake would be slashed. And so that's sort of a one way to prevent misbehavior because you can't sort of, you can't sort of prove using, you know, secure proofs or whatever that you didn't cause an abort so instead instead using economic disincentives is a good idea here now the tricky thing is that often there's sort of a gap between the assumptions you make when doing identifiable abort in papers and the way it works in practice so one thing you assume in papers is that sort of like every message is signed because if, if messages aren't signed then there's no way to attribute what's happening because if I can if I can imitate other people, the problem is that I can sort of I can do something which would get a person slashed. Like I could do something that would get me slashed, but pretend to be a different person, and so then that causes them to get slashed because they get identified as the, as the bad party. So you need messages to be signed, and you'd agree on what each person's public key is, which is a really relatively strong assumption, especially here. Although I guess it's not that bad. But the tricky thing is that is that then there's still out-of-band ways to cause aborts that just aren't captured by the protocol and the paper. So one thing I like to bring up is what do you do if you receive a message that isn't signed? Because if, if a message isn't signed, well, you could continue, but then you have the whole problem of like being able to impersonate people. So you need to like stop. But if you stop, who do you blame? Because sure, I could say, well, I received an unsigned message this IP address, but how do I know that it's, you know, actually the node that's, that's there and not, uh, you know, someone either spoofing their IP or maybe, maybe you have like multiple nodes participating in the protocol, which are on the same, behind the same NAT, you know, maybe they're both on the same, you know, university campus or whatever, or maybe, maybe they're both using Tor and they ended up at the same exit node. I don't know if that's possible, but I think you can have that. And so, or maybe like you're using a trusted, uh, maybe using like a third party thing just to forward messages because because often you want like broadcast and whatnot. So it's it's useful to have this sort of coordinator which send messages around. And in that case, there's no like IP address or any kind of identifiable information. You just, you know, you receive messages that claim to be from a certain person, but it's easy to just modify where it claims to be from. No need for complicated IP spoofing or whatever. And so that's one way to cause Therefore, spurious reports because you can't really punish somebody for sending an unsigned message because there's no way to know who who did it, and so you might end up you know punishing the wrong person if you try to take action based on that. So because there's this sort of out of band assumption, there's like a, things you can do which like aren't part of the model for what actions are possible in identifiable board papers. So you can cause spurious reports like that, and there's other things you can do like you can basically like essentially. DOS people that are participating in the network so I can like cause their messages to be delayed or you know to be unrouted 
And then, well, you can't really say that it's identifiable because it's not necessarily their fault. Because maybe they just had, you know, their shark ate the ate the internet cable. It's not really their fault, and they really shouldn't be punished for it. Although you could say that it's sort of like your responsibility to maintain a node that, that's on online. Kind of like uh, validators and proof of stake. Where it's like, well, you know, if you're... If your internet was cut off, uh, you know, so uh, so bad, so sad. It's it's too bad because you really, you know, you're getting rewarded with with your staking for keeping a validator that has good uptime. You know, that's the, that's one argument for slashing. So you could say, well, you know, it's your fault for having a, a node that has bad uptime and not having good DOS protection. But then there's sort of this perverse incentive to like DOS other nodes to slash them. And so like. This is sort of an example of like integrating MPC protocols in the real world is tricky, especially well. One thing identifiable board can be useful for is like sort of an auditing trail because if you don't have identifiable boards, you can have silent boards which you can't do anything about. That can be much easier to cause than like uh, you know spoofing IP addresses <laughs> and causing dot and doing DOS attacks. And so having this audit trail can be useful to sort of debug failures and try and identify culprits. And it does sort of add an extra layer of effort you have to do to, to attack a protocol, at least in terms of its liveness. But I think automated investigations of identifiable boards are very tricky to do correctly. And I'm sort of wary of systems that try to do it at the moment because it's there's just so many things you can get wrong and you basically introduce this huge attack vector where if you have automatic punishments based on identifying culprits with regards to reports, it's very tricky because like uh, you have so many failure modes where it can cause someone to get slashed inadvertently or by mistake and that's just something you really don't want and that's a much worse failure than just well you know we have to restart the protocol because we didn't receive an output after a certain amount of time and often yeah you can leverage like if you're doing this in the context of blockchains you can sort of leverage a blockchain for like Kind of consensus level things because basically at the end of the protocol everybody sort of like post their output and if after a certain amount of time not everybody has posted their output which is sort of neutral because the blockchain is assumed to not be controlled by the participants of the mpc protocol if not all the outputs are there you can say well let's restart the protocol something went wrong so somebody could like cause the protocol to restart a bunch of times but eventually you sort of investigate that and also lose you can you can sort of add economic incentives for progress in the protocol. So you can make it so that people have sort of like stake that's locked up until a certain amount of progress has been made, which basically encourages people that are participating to not cause spur support. So that's another mechanism. But once again, like there's a lot of these ad hoc techniques I've mentioned to like address these concerns when doing NPC in the in the wild. But it's still very underexplored, so I'd really like to see some people, you know, trying to deploy some MPC protocols at scale for stuff and see what kind of automated systems you can make to allow MPC computations to be run at, at scale and for real applications and without sort of human intervention. It's a lot of uh, a lot of MPC protocols have been sort of you know bespoke and and for very small numbers of people and for sort of ad hoc situations. It'd be interesting to see if you could make like a generalized, you know arbitrary computation automated system that's something probably for that's something to explore in a, another episode maybe and since i mentioned proof of stake i guess let's get to the final topic i'd like to talk about today which is uh some thoughts on uh, block producer privacy or private block producing so 
if you look at like uh, the way blockchains end up working when you have sort of a, a validator set, which is what proof of stake is moving towards. You could do it with proof of work too. I mean, that's sort of orthogonal to how you like validators. And the idea here is that you have a set of validators and they order transactions because the way it works is that not every node is a validator. Validators are a small subset of nodes and they can order transactions by running traditional consensus mechanisms like Byzantine consensus. And then they all sign off on, on the final block using a threshold signature scheme, which could just be everybody signs it and you see a list of signatures, or it could be an actual thing like Frost, which does Schnorr signatures, or you could do like an aggregatable signature scheme like BLS. But anyhow, at the end, as a sort of consumer of the blockchain, you see this, this new block with the signature from the set of validators. And so you're like, okay, well, this was agreed upon by them. And they provide an ordering of transactions because they, they sort of come to consensus on each new, new block of transactions. So one tricky thing is that if the validators see the blocks, when they're voting on them, they might be tempted to censor them or to like manipulate them in some other way. So one example of this is MEV, minor extractable value. Here there's no minors, but the term is still used. The idea is like, well, uh, a validator could be bribed into voting on a specific block or over another because that there's enough, there's enough profitability in having that block be included that it's worthwhile to bribe someone. So basically if I know that if a block gets appended to the blockchain, I make a million dollars because I'm like exploiting some vulnerability or something, then I could pay off the, the validator 500,000 to include it or pay off a bunch of validators to include it. So that's sort of a, a way for the validators to extract extra, extra value beyond the staking rewards or the transaction fees they might get from including blocks. And then an even worse thing is like censoring transactions. So maybe there's like, you know, hypothetically, let's say there's a list of addresses which are sanctioned by some government, you know, hypothetically. Uh, you might have some values which are tempted to not include blocks with those transactions because they could see be seen to be corroborating with sanctioned entities, uh, depending on how you interpret the laws in those countries. Or in general, you just might have like a vendetta against a person, you know. This validator doesn't like this other competitor, so they like they knowingly cause harm to them by not including any of their transactions in the blocks they vote on. And the issue here is that like you can see the contents of a block before you vote on it. So one way around this, and this is sort of like the most foolproof way is that you make all transactions in the system private. So a la Zcash, shorter transactions or Ironfish or whatever privacy coin you like. And in this case, well, you know, since all the transactions are private, I, I really don't learn anything about I don't learn anything about its contents, so like the censorship thing doesn't really work anymore. Unless like somebody sort of rats out somebody else saying, oh yeah, this uh, this block actually contains this transaction which you, which you should uh, censor. But uh, that's sort of an unrealistic threat model because a priori, like nobody, if you send a transaction to like the, the mempool, it'd be difficult to like figure out that that's a transaction you want to center, censor because by the time it reaches that point, a lot of the information is already hidden. Now, MEV would still exist in this model, I think, because like you could still bribe people because you know the contents of a block 
or at least the relevant parts of the block. So you could say, well, you know, if you include this block quickly for this specific ordering of the block, then I'll pay you some money. So there'd still be some bribing potentially. And another problem with sort of the full stack integrated approach is that, well, now you need a system where all the transactions can be private. And so it's one thing, it's one thing to, to try and add privacy. You want to try and do things in like a somewhat backwards compatible or at least an easily migratable approach. Like it's not going to be possible to shield our Ethereum transactions without like a very major fork to the network, perhaps even more, more so than proof of stake. Because like a lot of things just like need to be completely rethought and completely re-engineered if you want all transactions to be private. It's one thing if you just have like money. It's another thing if you have complete smart contracts, in which case there are some works like Zex on like decentralized private computation in the blockchain context, but otherwise it's it's very tricky. So another approach is like, well, you you try and, and basically just solve this production problem where the validators can vote on the block of transactions before they know what's inside. So one really common idea, which a lot of different schemes put together in, in concrete ways a bit differently, is that of using threshold encryption. So the idea is like, to simplify, let's say, well, let's just go with the threshold thing. So in our model, a threshold of, of validators need to sign the block. So like maybe a majority of them need to sign the block. Well, so looking at this as sort of a black box, given a majority of keys, of signing keys, you can create a valid signature. So one thing you could do is you have a, an encryption scheme where given a majority of keys, you can decrypt ciphertext. But anybody can create a, a message sent to, uh, to the validators that a majority of validators would need to cooperate in order to, to decrypt. So one thing is that if I want a block to be potentially, you know, added to the chain, well, first I encrypt it to the validators and then the validators wrote on encrypted blocks. And then after, you know, a block has been sort of pre-finalized, then they come together to decrypt it. And the idea is like, because of the honest majority assumption, you know that there's not enough nodes that can collude in order to decrypt in advance before the voting happens. And because of this, you sort of have this layer of privacy where validators don't know which blocks they're voting on. And what's interesting is that you can actually, if you use like BLS signatures or, or more signatures, or even ECDSA would work too, you could have like a threshold encryption scheme which uses the same sort of like thresholdization of the key as with the signatures. So like you wouldn't need a different set of keys. But you could also just, you know, you could have a second set of keys which gets signed by the, the primary set and so you, you know that you can trust those keys. That's a bit of a technical detail, but it's kind of neat. Now you also need to be careful that like the validators don't learn through some back channel what the contents of blocks are. So like if I if I produce an entire block myself and then send it to like the the P2P you know broadcast network, that's fine because like I'm the only one that knows the contents of the block. But if you have like just transactions sitting in a pool and like people, you know, gathering them together, it's possible that they might like leak back information to the validators about the contents of the block. So even if it's, you know, technically encrypted, it's possible that some validators have already learned what's inside, which is bad. So you can sort of have like a layer sort of mixing where like 
first like a bunch of blocks get created so those are like candidates and then they get encrypted and shuffled and encrypted and shuffled so that by the time it gets to the validators unless you have a strong number of uh these sort of producers colluding together then the contents will be be indecipherable unless a majority of uh, validators collaborate and I think I think ultimately you really do need block producer privacy at the base layer because if we get to a point where chains start censoring transactions, you know, at the blockchain layer, it's going to be very very difficult um, for these networks to stay permissionless and decentralized. And I think that's uh, yeah. That's going to be an interesting test to see what how people deal with this because it seems that like some some miners are already censoring uh certain transactions related to sanctioned entities so it, it's going to be interesting to see how this evolves over the the coming year and how different uh different players react to it hopefully ethereum can get uh some kind of block producer privacy there's uh there's a lot of more concrete proposals which are quite a lot more fleshed out than the little overview I gave in this podcast. So hopefully those have uh, success. I certainly think it's it's necessary. And with that, I think uh, it was a good suite of topics for today. And until the next episode, this was The Cold Dive. And I was Lucas, aka Corona Kirby. Thanks for listening. I'll see you around.